You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. The way I learned to think about doctrine and theology sounds something like George Lindbeck's formula. Doctrines are the narratives and vocabularies and practices that constitute a historically distinct tradition, and theology names the ways that people organize and account for and fight over those doctrines. Thomas J. Ord's latest book, Open and Relational Theology and Introduction to Life-Changing Ideas, does all three of theology's tasks, and we're glad to have him back on the show. Tom, thanks for joining us again. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Well, Tom, since you've been on Christian Humanist Profiles to talk with me a couple times, I want to start out with a question uh, basically of this book's place alongside the books we've discussed before. And listeners, I'll put the links to those episodes in the show notes for this episode on christianhumanist.org. I see sections of this book that revisit questions from the uncontrolling love of God and God can't. And I also see themes from other books of yours that I've read. So who is your audience for this particular volume? And what work is this book doing that adds to the work that those books do? Yeah, The Uncontrolling Love of God was written in a more academic kind of way, and it proposed my particular way of thinking about the problem of evil and why a God of uncontrolling love isn't uh, culpable, morally responsible for failing to prevent evil in the world. And the reason is, uh, is uh, probably framed pretty well in the second book that God can't. Uh, God can't single-handedly prevent evil because God is essentially uncontrolling or God's love is uncontrolling. That second book, though, God Can't, was written more for a popular audience. It was the kind of book that people can give those who are wrestling with big questions that gives a a very different set of answers than most people have heard. Answers, obviously, I find compelling. But there is a kind of a theological framework that um, that those two books rest on that I call open and relational theology. And that framework has many dimensions, many nuances, many versions and varieties. And I wanted to write a book that could explore that variety while talking about what the variety has in common that makes it open and relational but in a way that just your average person might understand it. So it's not an academic book. It's like God can't, it's written for the average person, but it, it's exploring things far beyond the questions of God's relation to evil. Very good. And we're going to explore a lot of the major movements in this volume before we start re- revisiting some of the conversations we've shared Uh, in previous episodes. So, Tom, let's start with the book's presentation of a kind of middle course uh, via media. Your reader sees early on that this book is neither offering certainty, nor is it resigning to ignorance, but it's doing some third thing. So, let our listeners hear what you would call that third possibility. Mm, I like that, the way you set that up. Yeah, I'm And there's some ways of doing theology that make it sound like God, you know, dumped a bunch of information into somebody's head straight from heaven, and they're absolutely confident and certain of it. They they know this to be true either by some, what I would call interpretation of sacred scripture, or they think it's deductively true given certain premises and and 
that kind of a way of thinking about theology, I find unattractive for a whole number of reasons. But in response to that, what some will do is sort of swing away to what I think is the opposite, which is kind of throw out any kind of appeals to ra a rational consistency or uh, um, uh, connection to our experience, to evidence, to science, et cetera. And uh, we end up getting approached to theology that doesn't make any kind of normative claims and doesn't have any confidence, it seems, sometimes at least. And what I wanted to do in this book is say there is this middle way that can make real claims about who God is, can make real claims about how the world seems to work, make claims about revelation, make claims of, of all sorts, but in a humble way that doesn't walk around thinking we've got it all figured out, but is a proposal that's plausible, that fits so much of the way we live our lives, and I think fits a particular interpretation of sacred scriptures, not only Christian, but other sacred scriptures as well. Very good. And, and Tom, you know that I'm a rhetoric professor, among other things. So, you know, one thing that I'm interested in is that, you know, this book does not remain in the uh, what I would call the descriptive register, uh, mm -hmm. the way that some histories of ideas do and that some histories of theology do, uh, but it's really making a case uh, to the reader. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, I want to, you know, have our readers listen for is, I mean, what kind of case this is, right? So, mm, uh, you know, even though it is a humble case, and I, I really do think it is a humble case, it is a case nonetheless. Um and one part of that case that you make, Tom, is a phrase that I don't remember seeing in your other books, uh, although that might be a reflection of my memory more than about your other books. Uh, but I want you to talk to our listeners just a little bit about the term dipolar theism that appears in this book. Break that term down for us and show us how it lets theology tell a particular kind of story about God and about God's life with creation. Yeah, in the history of ideas, especially Christian Muslim ideas, and I guess Judaism as well, but usually it's Christians and, and uh, Muslims who have wrestled with this, uh, there's been a real strong tendency to want to say God is immutable, God is unchangeable, because God is perfect. So the, the argument has gone something like, you know, God is by definition perfect, a perfect being wouldn't change in any way because a change could only be toward imperfection. Therefore, a perfect being is unchanging, and that's sort of where we sit. In, in right. Or world. to add, you know, Plato's other side of that coin, if a being changed and became more perfect, then it wasn't God before. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that has really reigned. That idea has reigned not only in uh, conservative uh, orthodox, traditional, but even in liberal circles. Um, but there's real problems with thinking about divine perfection as in all ways unchanging, in part because it, one of the biggest problems is that, at least in my argument in this book and many others, it's hard to imagine a loving God being unchanging in all respects, because we tend to think of love as a kind of giving and receiving, being affected by others and affecting others, uh, a kind of mutuality or reciprocity. And an unchanging God in all respects, um, you know, that doesn't work very well. Now, of course, the alternative might be, well, God is a changing God. 
And if God is changing in all respects, then you have this real reciprocity. But then you might have a God who on Tuesdays is really loving and on Wednesdays is really evil. Uh, you might have a God who uh, could change from existing to not existing and all kinds of other interesting uh, phenomenon. People, especially in ancient times, wanted to avoid all the problems that come from thinking God is changing. And so they stuck only with saying God is unchanging. What dipolar theism does, or what I call God's experience essence binate, what it does is say that God has an unchanging aspect and a changing aspect. God's nature or essence is unchanging. It's eternally the same. But God's experience changes moment by moment in giving and receiving relationship. And so this one pole is God's essence, the other pole is God's experience, or again, as I prefer to call it, God's essence experience binate. This allows one then to say that God really does engage in giving and receiving love, but because God's eternal nature is steadfast love, God's never going to break bad. God's never going to stop loving or become evil. And I think this is a huge prompt, uh, uh, step forward in thinking about uh, God of love. So I want to follow up on that a little bit. I mean, one uh, impulse that I have, you know, simply because, uh, you know, I teach narrative for a living uh, is to say, all right, you know, what you're saying here. Uh, is trying to take the the claim that you know revelation comes to us in narrative form, you know, which seems to me you know pretty self evident, uh, and turning that into a kind of systematic claim uh, about things. Uh, so you know, one of the things that that I guess I'm I'm curious about uh, is, I mean, what does this kind of theological move add to the very basic claim that revelation? comes to us in narrative form? Yeah, great question. You know, I, I am personally a Christian, and so I'm pretty, uh, I read a lot of the Christian scriptures. And I noticed early on in the narrative, you had both of these impulses in place. For instance, uh, the book of James says the Lord or the God does not change. Uh, and that's also in Leviticus. And so you've got these claims in scripture that God is unchanging. And yet, in more than 40 instances in the Old Testament, uh, God is said to repent, to have a change of mind. So the narrative itself has both of these aspects, and we're left to wonder what to do with it. Well, one way to do it, and this is what many classic uh, theologies will do, is they'll say, well, we can believe as true all the claims that say God is unchanging, and the ones that say God uh, changes, well, those are just anthropomorphic projections. Those are just us foisting upon God our human categories, and God's not really changing. I suppose you could do the opposite, but I don't know anyone who does that. But what I'm doing here is saying, look, we can actually take the narrative seriously in both cases if we think of God's essence or nature as unchanging and God's moment-by-moment -moment experience as changing. And one of the ways to do this, although it has some, some downsides, is to uh, use an analogy of our own experience. Um, if there's such a thing as human nature, which is a big if, but let's pretend like we're all agreed that there's a, such a thing called human nature. One would say then that uh, you and I have had this human nature whenever you know, either we're conceived or born or whatever it starts. 
And yet throughout our lifetime, we've had all kinds of radical changes. The Tom who's talking to you right now is different than the Tom who was alive an hour ago or a year ago or 50 years ago. And so we can use this analogy to say, Tom has a constant human nature, but God, Tom's experience has changed throughout the years. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. I want to turn to another uh, kind of trio from, you know, classical theology. And those are, those are the three omnis. And I found this book interesting because uh, your, your theology, I mean, pretty categorically rejects divine omnipotence uh, as it's traditionally conceived. It heavily modifies divine omniscience, uh, but then it insists on keeping God's omnipresence. So uh, here's my question for you, Tom, and take what time you need. Uh, why three different responses to the three well-known omnis? Yeah, I suppose you could say I modify all three of them, or you could say I reject all three of them. <laughs> it all depends on what you think those three, how they're best defined. I know. I, I, thought omni, <laughs> I thought omnipresence you were pretty insistent upon. Yeah, yeah. Although one could think that omnipresence means God literally is everything, which would be a form of pantheism. Well, that's I think not the same as omnipresence. Come on, Tom. <laughs> I don't think so either, but uh, <laughs> some, <laughs> some people talk as if that's the case. So I want to say omnipresence should be understood as God being present to all creation, which is not the same as saying God is all creation. But, but you're right. There's very few fights about that particular issue. Um, the omniscience one, as an open theist, I'm a person who think God learns. I think there's new information that comes in the world moment by moment. God knows everything that can be known. So God learns everything and God's omniscient in that sense. But God doesn't stand outside of time and know all knowledge possible beginning to end as if God looks at it from a distance and sees history all at once. So, yeah, I have a, a different view of omniscience than what some people have uh, affirmed. I think, obviously, it's a more co coherent one, but we can argue about that. My view of omnipotence, um, you know, I could really, I could probably affirm the word if I got to define it the way I wanted to. <laughs> but uh, that, that goes for so many words, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I, I'll agree with you as long as I can redefine the words that you just used. <laughs> yeah. But what's really interesting is when you sit down with a bunch of scholars, especially I'll just sort of narrow it down to analytic Christian philosophers and you ask them what they mean by omnipotence, it's not what most people in the pew of a church or a synagogue mean by omnipotence. They make all kinds of qualifications, and they've been doing that throughout history. So, you know, they'll quickly say, well, omnipotence does not mean that God can do what is illogical. God can't make a married bachelor or a square circle or something like that. And they'll say omnipotence means that God can't uh, do things that are mathematically impossible. God can't make two plus two equal 387. And then some will say, well, God's omnipotence is also qualified in that God has a particular nature. And so God can't uh, stop existing, let's say, because God exists necessarily. Or God can't sin because God is perfectly loving. So they qualify in that way. And then a whole lot of them, the majority, as far as I can tell, 
will say, well, God also can't change the past. Thomas Aquinas, for instance, makes a big point of this. So there's certain things that have occurred, they're done and over with, and God can't change them. And then there's another subset who'll say, well, yes, I believe God is omnipotent, but God can't override creaturely freedom because God gives it, and it wouldn't really be a gift if God, you know, overrode it. And so all of these qualifications, at the end of the day, I just say, why do we keep this word? I mean, it just, it, it doesn't mean for academics what it means for lots of other people, which is for lots of other people, it seems to mean God can do anything. And it's just, I think, and most people, most scholars think it's incoherent to say God can do just anything. So I think instead of using that word, we should use other words. And in this particular book, I coined my own word. Uh, the word I coined is amipotent, A-M-I-P-O-T-E-N-T. I was going to ask you how to pronounce that because I read that and I said, all right, Tom, I, I have never seen that word in print. <laughs> I haven't either. I made it up. So I guess I can make up how to pronounce it too. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, so omnipotence means that we should understand God's power through the lens of love. And so God can't do all kinds of things that I've already mentioned, but especially God can't decide not to love. Now, God must love, we might say. And furthermore, I think God's love is inherently uncontrolling. So God's omnipotence cannot control anyone or anything. All right, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to save uh, the contentions for later. Um, but I do want to uh, just probe this term omnipotence now that I've heard it said out loud. Uh, just a little bit more, because uh, one of the things that I often hear, uh, largely from my students, uh, but also from, you know, folks I attend church with, uh, is that, you know, uh, to love is to choose to love. Uh, I mean, you know, if a, if God, let's not say a God, let's not make God one among several of this category called God, but if God uh, cannot choose to love, then uh, does it reduce its moral impressiveness? Yeah, and I'm, I'm yeah. not phrasing it the ways that they phrase it, but they phrase it better than I do. <laughs> yeah, this was an issue I had to wrestle through, and I did so 30 years ago or so, because I also had that intuition that, look, when I love, I freely choose to love, and wouldn't that be the same for God? Uh, my view is that God must love because God's nature is love. So God is different from us. We don't have natures, eternal natures of love, while God does. However, God does have freedom in choosing how to love. So uh, maybe a quick way to say it is we have freedom in two senses. We can choose whether we're going to love and we can choose how we're going to love. Our natures are not love, so we have choices in both those regards. In God's case, though, I think God must love because it's God's very nature. But God has freedom to choose how to love. Interestingly, um, if I wasn't an open and relational theist and I said God must love, I would also probably have to say it's necessary and God has no freedom in how to love because in that framework or in the uh, classic framework, 
um, God sits outside of time, doesn't experience time sequentially. So God would know with absolute certainty everything that's going to happen in the future. And God could crunch the numbers, we might say, and know with absolute certainty what the most loving thing is to do. And there would be no freedom on God's part. So actually, the open and relational framework that I propose in this book is really important for salvaging, you might say, an aspect of God's freedom in terms of how God chooses to love. All right. All right. I want to turn to creation for a moment because, uh, you know, this is something that I really haven't read in your books yet. Uh, so I enjoyed this creation chapter. And it seems like to me, uh, and by the way, you are absolutely free to correct me here. <laughs> that an open relational theology of creation does share some common ground with what our listeners might find in Thomas Aquinas. But what I see are some important differences of emphasis. So what are the points of contention and what are the fields of common concern that you'd point to when you talk about, you know, a, a classical vision of creation and an open relational vision of creation? Yeah, well, there's diversity within the open and relational community on how to think about God's creating. I think there are two main models, however. One model says God initially existed alone, and God decided, based on love, to create the universe out of absolutely nothing. Um, this particular decision on God's part uh, was made because God wanted to share love, you might say, or God wanted creatures to experience divine love. And um, so love is God's motive, but God created out of nothing. The other model says that God did not create out of nothing. God has always been creating um, because God has always been loving. So uh, both of them point to love as the motive for God's creating, one says God creates out of nothing. The other says God doesn't create out of nothing. And um, this is an ongoing debate within open relational circles. Uh, the Bible doesn't settle this issue. Uh, the Christian tradition turned to creation out of nothing pretty strongly in about the fourth century. Prior to that, it wasn't a, a major thing. But, you know, nine out of 10 theologians today, professional theologians, you might say, will affirm creation out of nothing. Um, I well, although myself, we should note that there have been significant moments, and, you know, my dissertation is on one of them. Uh, but John Milton, for instance, goes back to a sort of primordial, eternal, formless matter as something that is coexistent with God. So oh, it, it's, not, did, it's yeah. not by any means monolithic. It's not by any means uniform. That's the word I'm yeah, looking for yeah. throughout the tradition. That's Sorry, right. I, had to, I had to put in my two cents for Milton there. <laughs> I'm happy you did. I remember now that you say that, that you've shared that with me in the past. And and it's true. Well, I only know three in... things, Tom. I just say them in different orders. <laughs> <laughs> but this is especially true in Judaism. Judaism has a really strong tradition that rejects creation out of nothing. Um, in, in Protestantism, it's um, almost universal. I mean, I'm like one of the few Protestants who, do, who don't affirm it. Uh, Catholics the same way. Um, I have written quite a bit on this subject, so if you'd like to go more into it, um, uh, we can, but um, I'll just quickly say... Well, I'm point our listeners to oh. a text or two of yours. I mean, let, promote okay. yourself here, Tom. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, 
I deal with this in a popular way in a chapter in my book, Questions and Answers for God Can't, because uh, after the book God Can't came out and sold really well, people have had all kinds of questions, and I wrote a whole book answering those, and one of those was on the doctrine of creation. Um, it's also, I address it in my more scholarly book called The Nature of Love, and uh, just today, I, I'm working on a book called The Theology of Pluriform Love, where I've, I'm doing another thing against creation out of nothing. So, so um, those are some places, the Pluriform book will be coming out in 2022, but those are some places people could look if they want to go into more depth. Oh, now I feel guilty because I, I read and wrote a blog review of The Nature of Love years ago, and I don't remember oh. the creation part. So I, <laughs> I, I love it. Bad, what a bad host I am. What a bad host I am. <laughs> uh, I should have remembered that. Uh, well, Tom, we talked earlier about the fact that this is not a book uh, that remains descriptive, but it does make a case. And your last full chapter uh, really kind of presents what I read as a... a a closing argument, if you will, nice. uh, why uh, our jury of readers uh, should, in fact, find in favor of open and relational theology. So in outline, I still want people to read your book, after all. What are some of the advantages <laughs> of open and relational theology for understanding and also living divine love? Yeah, well, um, I, I should probably preface to say in the first chapter, I lay out about 10 reasons why people are attracted to this way of thinking. But then, as you say, in this last chapter, I sort of play my ace. You know, this is the one that's nearest and dearest to my heart. Um, and that reason is that I think this way of talking about God and creation makes the best sense of my deep intuitions about the primacy of love, that God is a God of love. God loves me and all creation. God calls upon me to love, that in some sense, you know, love is the answer. Um, most uh, theologies that have different kinds of frameworks that other than open relational tend to see God as sort of aloof, or they'll describe God's love in such a weird way that it doesn't make any sense compared to our love. Or they'll say God has no, you know, receiving aspects. God is not affected. God is impassable. And uh, so, you know, of course, that doesn't fit the way we understand love because we think love is really relational. There's all kinds of problems. Uh, let me just, I, I got to keep going here because now, now you got me revved up. I'm going to start preaching here. <laughs> keep, 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 keep preaching. Keep preaching. <laughs> you know, the traditional God is said to love us, but then sends a bunch of people to hell. That makes no sense. The traditional God is said to love us, but doesn't necessarily forgive us until we really pray and ask 29 times or something. The traditional God elects some, but not others, has favorites, but rejects some. Esau I love, or Jacob I love, Esau I hated. Um, you know, I could just go on and on about what I think are the problems with not just um, traditional theologies of love, but the frameworks that undergird those theologies. Open and relational theology is not just a different way to think about God in the specifics, it has a particular framework for understanding reality that's different from what we usually call classical theologies. And I think it makes a whole lot more sense in making uh, some headway toward affirming a God of love who calls creatures to love. 
Very good. Very good. Now I am going to uh, get to some contentious points, but first I have to confess that uh, the very, very end of this book, Tom, made me uh, laugh in my living room because one of the times that you were on my show, and I can't remember which one it was, I slipped and called you a process theologian. And uh, before I had you back on, you uh, wrote a whole appendix reminding me that not every open and relational thinker is a process theologian. So <laughs> I do want you to talk oh, about this a little that. bit. I mean, how big is the big tent of open and relational thought? And why is the magnitude of that tent important? Yeah, well, this, I, I think I'll answer this question biographically. All right. Hit it. Um, I grew up in a pretty conservative theological tradition. In fact, I'm still an ordained elder in it, but um, you know, a fairly traditional kind of evangelical church. And I had lots of questions and I had to abandon some of the things people taught me. And along the way, I started reading some of this process theology stuff and I found much of it very enticing and winsome. But I was quickly told that that's... I've, I've got to know, did you start with John Cobb or did you start with Whitehead? Because John Cobb, I find accessible. Whitehead, oh, I have to read exactly. like a half a page at a time. <laughs> well, the first book I read is not all that easy to read, actually. It was by Charles Hartshorn. It was called ah, A Natural okay, okay. Theology for Our Time. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but... So I, I, I saw these aspects of process theology I really liked, but everyone around me told me, well, it's not biblical, it's not real Christianity, you know, they had all these criticisms, and I could understand some of the criticisms, they, they made some sense to me, but others didn't, and there was this real disconnect between the God that I thought was made a lot of sense and what many process people were talking about, and the God that uh, my evangelical leaders said, you know, process theology was really all about. In the mid 90s, a book came out called The Openness of God. And this was written by five evangelicals who really wanted to maintain their evangelical background, but had all kinds of ideas that sounded awful lot like process theology. In is fact, that the one edited by Clark Pinnock by chance? It is. Yeah. yeah okay. Okay. I, I, I thought that sounded familiar. I'm sorry. I keep interrupting you. Yeah. Keep going. Nope. Keep going. Man, no problem at all. <laughs> What's funny in that book is they go out of their way to distinguish their view from process theology, but some of the basic concepts like the future is open and God can't know it with absolute certainty. And God is a relational God who's affected by creation. I mean, that is sort of a couple of hallmark views of process theology. So as time went on, I realized that these two camps and folks who were kind of on the fringes of both had a lot in common. And if they could come together under a larger umbrella that I eventually called open and relational theology, they could affirm these things they had in common, but still have plenty of room for have their own, you know, idiosyncratic emphases and differences of opinion, et cetera. And so that's what open and relational theology is. It's a broad umbrella that has very few things that people have to affirm that the future is open and God is relational. Uh, and then it allows for all kinds of diversity underneath that big tent. And this, I think, well, I think I'm, I can be objectively say that label has really caught on 
and lots of people feel comfortable under it because they know they have freedom to explore and disagree with others under the tent, but still affirm those big, broad categories. Okay, very good, very good. Well, Tom, as we turn to some points that I want you to expound further, I'm going to go ahead and let our listeners know or remind them if they've listened to a few of my interviews over the years that I'm all about Kenneth Burke's project from A Grammar of Motives. And here's what that means. When I interview any author, but especially theologians, I'm less interested in dispelling ambiguity than I am in naming the points of ambiguity truthfully so that people can engage those ambiguities responsibly. So I'm going to pose each of these questions in Tom, in turn, not in Tom, I'm going to pose each of them in turn and let Tom respond. I shouldn't have put those words next to each other. And then I'm going to move to the next. So listeners, go ahead and start writing your emails about how I shouldn't have let him go off so easily. Uh, it's called hospitality. I don't always do it well, but I do try to I practice it. it, dear listener. So with all that in place, Tom, here's my first contentious, contentious question. Good. In your first full chapter, you sketch a picture of, quote, a conventional God, unquote, who, among other things, does not respond to prayers, as you said, doesn't get angry at injustice in the world, doesn't reach out to the lost. I have to confess that although I've read Neoplatonic and Epicurean texts that present that image of God, I've never heard that God in a sermon, and I don't see it that often in written theology other than in open and relational polemics against that God. Is this just a function of my good luck visiting churches or have people spotted conventional God in the wild? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, one of the things about writing popular books is you have to sometimes uh, paint with broad brushstrokes. Um, but since this is an opportunity to go into specifics, let me say that the God of Thomas Aquinas never acts more than once. The God of Thomas Aquinas is actus purus without potentiality, which is a way of saying God never has any changes whatsoever, never acts more than one time. Now, by the time Aquinas is at the end of the Summa, he's saying all kinds of things about God's acting. So I'm not claiming that he himself never says God acts. I'm claiming that his uh, upfront uh, doctrine of God, if we take it seriously, and this would apply for Augustine and many others, would not uh, affirm a God who can act more than once. And I find that problematic. Um, this is the same God who can't be affected. Uh, God is impassable in that sense. So um, um, that's the kind of claim that I'm, I'm uh, referring to when I'm talking about a conventional God who, I can't remember the verbs you use, but um, acting is the one that comes into mind. Can't respond, for instance. Um, doesn't go to seek and save the lost in any kind of sense that we right. think of seeking. Doesn't and become save. angry at the injustice in the world. Right. Yep. No emotions whatsoever. Uh, again, you can read people who have that view of God, who in other parts of their books say God does that. Like I point this out all the time with Augustine. Um, but if we take seriously their fundamental claims about God being pure action without potentiality and unmoved mover and all those kinds of things, then they shouldn't really say those other things they say in their books. All right. Thank you for that. Now I'm going to stick with the notion of preaching. And I realize more and more every time that I read 
not only open and relational writers like you and Tripp who have been on the show, but also the Calvinist writers who have been on the show. What I realize about myself, because this is all about me after all, Tom, uh, <laughs> is that I think of theology mainly as an exegetical enterprise. And the reason that I am still not swayed to become any more reformed than I already am, because I'm already somewhat reformed, or any more open and relational than I already am, because I'm already somewhat open and relational, is that each camp wants to center some of the texts of scripture while marginalizing others. And I'm more inclined to a biblical pluralism that presents us with the saving power in a sort of, you know, bring us out of Egypt sense of God in some passages. And with the movement of the Holy Spirit that empowers human agents in a let's go, you know, heal the sick in the book of accents in others. In short, I want both of those. So here's my question. Can open and relational hermeneutics, speaking strictly about the Bible, take those te texts in which God does things and then those texts in which God's people get frustrated because God used to do things, but right now God isn't doing things. Can open and relational theology take those texts on their own terms with real subjects and real verbs, or do we have to consign them to a sort of psychologized margin of our spirituality? Oh, wow. Great question. Now, I'm going to answer that question from my perspective. There are going to be other open uh, and relational That's what I hoped folks. you would. <laughs> yeah. Other open and relational theologians are going to disagree with what I'm about ready to say. But from my perspective, the Bible is not a systematic theology. It has inconsistencies. It doesn't paint a perfect and consistent, coherent picture of God. So you're left with some options. One is you can have a God who's kind of got split personality disorder, who loves you on Tuesday and kicks your butt on Wednesday. Or you can have a God who is consistent in one way or another. One option is to say God is consistently in control, has no emotions, doesn't act, doesn't respond. That's basically the consistency of classical theism. Another option is to go by, with the idea that God is perfectly loving. And those biblical passages that paint God otherwise are just dead wrong. All right. So, I mean, you know, here, well, no, 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 I'm going to follow up on that. I'm going to follow good, up good, on good. that. Right. Uh, so, you know, well, one of the things that, you know, uh, you've already pointed to this notion of anthropologize or yeah, anthropologize, anthropomorphizing. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I, I, one of my syllables I've got wrong here. Right. <laughs> anthropomorphizing. There we go. The text uh, is that, you know, reformed and Thomist and other biblical interpreters are going to say that, you know, the texts that emphasize, you know, the change of God's mind, the, the texts that emphasize uh, changes in God's emotional state, what I call the Exodus 4 test, you know, I mean, Moses says something and then God becomes more angry than God was before Moses said something, you know, that, that seems to be a change. They'll say that's anthropomorphism. Right. But then when I talk to open and relational folks, they'll say things that, you know, like you said, uh, you know, seem to be God making things happen in the world, right? They're dead wrong. Okay. So, you know, I guess the, the question that I would pose coming out of that is, uh, you know, when our listeners hear both of those voices saying the scriptures that they center 
we're pushing to the margin and the other side saying the scriptures that the other side centers we're pushing to the margin or calling dead wrong or saying they're anthropomorphizing uh you know what practices and i want to get to spirituality here i mean what practices would you recommend so that our listeners can navigate these choppy waters yeah yeah that's a really good point um, there are some open and relational thinkers who will say that they have all of scripture on their side. I don't make that claim as I've, as I've just done. Right. Right. So and our the, listeners have heard that. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So then the question becomes, okay, then how do you discern which portrayals of God in scripture are more accurate than others when there's a real conflict? You know, I want to say the majority of passages support my view, but maybe someone who has a, let's say, a John Cal- Calvinist view thinks the majority affirms theirs. Um, we could argue about that, but um, I'm admitting there are some that don't. So then how does one go about discerning or interpreting or making sense of a scripture that's not consistent? One approach that some people try to do is to say we can only look at scripture itself. So they have a sort of internal kind of move. And one of the most popular ones is to say we get clearer revelations in some portions of scripture than in others. Right. And That's Augustine's move. Yes. Uh, open and relational folks will do that by saying, look, Jesus gives us the best picture of who God is. And come on, Jesus does not. Uh, portray a God of uh, control, a God of, you know, the, the portrayal of God and Jesus is not, doesn't fit some of the other portrayals in scripture. That one goes a long way, but I don't know that it hits a home run because, um, you know, even some of the things Jesus does are quite puzzling. The Syrophoenician woman is probably the classic example where she comes to him and he says, the dogs, you know, have the crumbs. It doesn't seem like a very loving response. Um, So making the appeal to Jesus, I think is a good way to go. And I do it myself, but it doesn't answer all the issues. I think what we un fundamentally have to do is bring to scripture some intuitions that help us to make choices about which pictures of God in scripture make the most sense. I'll call it our moral intuitions. Do we think it's morally appropriate for someone to cause evil in the world or allow evil when they could have stopped it? Almost everybody says, no, that's a bad thing. So if that's bad for us, then why would it be good for God? And you can start to see that kind of appeal going. I'm, I'm saying what these moral intuitions we have, we should use them in the process of trying to discern which passage of scripture give a more accurate picture of who God is. You know, we can use perfect being theology. We can take a um, claims that uh, about modern psychology, modern science, these kinds of things. None of them are going to give us a slam dunk. Uh, there's always going to be some gray area, but I think you can make a, a case for open and relational theology based on these factors. All right. Very good. There's a couple more I want to get to. Good. One of them is once again, returning to this question of conventional God. And this comes from my experience as a professor, especially over the last decade or so. Tom, when I talk with my students about God, especially those students who spent their formative years in the context of high-level youth sports, we've got a ton of student athletes at my college, what seems to emerge from and resonate with those conversations is a 
some variation of Christian Smith's idea of therapeutic moral deism. So it's a God who generally wants people not to force their religion on other people and doesn't expect that much that one might call ethical from us mortals, just as long as we have good intentions. And frankly, that picture of God differs pretty radically from the varieties of conventional God that you present. So I guess my question is kind of a sociological one. What does open and, real, open and relational theology have to say to the moral therapeutic deists in my classrooms? Yeah. Well, I'm not a fan of that crit- criticism by Christian Smith. I think he overplays his hand. Um, but open and relational theo- theology doesn't have a God of deism. In open and relational thought, God is active and present in every situation at all times and all places. God doesn't watch us from afar like Bette Midler's God. God also calls upon us, makes demands of us, and those demands are the demands of love. So this is not a sort of fluffy, just do everything, whatever you want. On the other hand, it's not a here are all the 999 rules. You follow every one of them and you're righteous in God's sight. Or 613 Uh, as the case may be. Yes, but I should have used that number. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So um, there's also, you know, I think I like the notion of therapeutic uh, theology. Um, And for me, therapeutic theology means is stands in opposition to what I might call a forensic or legalistic theology. Um, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the, the Wesleyan tradition, thinks of uh, salvation primarily in therapeutic terms. And by therapy here, we mean something like the healing of our lives, the healing of our uh, relationships in the world. Um, now, that's a little bit different than what Christian Smith means by therapy. But um, my point is, I think open and relational theology uh, is a kind of middle way between the kind of approach or the kind of thing uh, Christian Smith criticizes and what some th- people think is the only other alternative, which is kind of a rigid rule-based uh, approach to religion. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. I want to pose one more because th- this is one that honestly has been troubling me since the last time you and I got to talk to each other, and I want to hear you talk about it. Oh, okay. Uh, and this one is for our American listeners especially, although I'm sure it applies to international listeners as well. So on a pastoral level with my students at the college and also with my fellow congregants at Bogart Christian Church, where I'm an elder, I've leaned heavily on a conventional notion of divine providence when I try to calm people down in the face of presidential elections and Supreme Court cases and other such things that in social media circles tend to turn up sort of the volume of the world is ending more and more frequently. It seems like the world's ending every other week. And what what I tell them pastorally, Tom, is that this is just a chapter in a story in which the primary character, who is the God who does stuff, that one from Exodus, that God has promised to render justice over and against humanity's injustice. So does open and relational have anything to say to the politically panicked beyond God asked them nicely not to be so nasty, but they're still going to destroy your world? (laughs) Yeah. Well, open and relational theology does not present a God who comes in with a big stick and kicks people's butt doesn't present a God who can come in, send a hurricane, and send all the bad people to hell. 
So if that's what justice means, you don't get it with open relational theology. However, open relational theology does present a God who is constantly, relentlessly calling, guiding, leading us to live lives of love. Now, that might seem to offer little hope when people are ignoring it. It offers little hope when, let's say, you're really dissatisfied with the political leadership uh, of a country, and um, you're really worried that the country is going to go down the tubes. Uh, because open a relational thought says, God isn't going to step in and single-handedly fix it. Now, the alternative, of course, is that God could step in and single-handedly fix things. And if that's the case, then God's doing a piss poor job of things in the world. And that doesn't sound very hopeful either. I find this especially uh, illustrated when I talk to people who are victims of horrific violence. They find it much more hopeful to believe God couldn't have stopped the crap that happened to them than think that God could have, but allowed it. And if we apply this to the political situation, I think we should say God is constantly working for good and calling us. And I think God never gives up. So uh, there's always hope that eventually all will cooperate. But because God is uncontrolling, our choices really make a difference. We have to cooperate with God and do our best to convince others to cooperate with God if love is truly to win. I'm going to pose a, a follow-up, Tom, that kind of okay, stems from, you know, some, some work that I did uh, as a research assistant for a church historian. Oh, goodness, has it been 20 years ago? It has been 20 years ago, Tom. I'm getting old. <laughs> but um, in Anabaptist literature, what the, the thought that I see framed in different ways comes across nonetheless with some consistency that the reason that people who purport to be Christians uh, still inflict violence on others in the world is that they lack faith that God is able to make things right. So they pick up their own weapons and they set out to make things right. Now, ethically speaking, uh, you know, I know you and I know Trip Fuller and, you know, I know several other uh, open and relational people and you all tend not to be the kinds who stockpile Armalite rifles <laughs> in your basements. Uh, so, I mean, is is talk to us talk to us listeners about the possibilities for a nonviolent ethic that nonetheless take this open and relational the theology seriously yeah that's a great question i don't have official polling on this but i suspect the majority of open and relational uh, people are pacifists yeah but yeah they, so i mean is this a case where their ethics are inconsistent with their theology I would, I would see the consistency there. They're pacifists, not because they're expecting God to do the job of controlling things, but they're pacifists because they think persuasive love is exactly how God acts, and we ought to do the same. So they're imitating the uncontrolling love of God by not controlling themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes some sense. Say a little bit more. Well, I mean, one way to think of this is to say that uh, God is uncontrolling. Uh, God wants things to happen that are good and loving, 
since God can't control, God really wants us to control. And so we ought to get those arms you were talking about. But um, that doesn't seem to fit very nicely with the notion that we ought to, as the Apostle Paul says, imitate God as dearly beloved children and live a life of love like Christ loved us. So I think what the majority, and here I can't speak for all, but the majority of open and relational thinkers I know think that God's love is essentially persuasive, always uncontrolling, always non-coercive, and to be like God, to be like Jesus, is to do the same. And the hope is that this persuasive love will be so winsome that all will finally recognize the use of violence just isn't good in the long run, and that all will eventually uh, cooperate with this uncontrolling love of God by being uncontrolling themselves. Very good. Well, Tom, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, and I have positive, positively badgered you here at the end. So <laughs> in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about open and relational theology and about your exasperating host's continuing inability to grab hold of it as we head for the door? <laughs> well, you know, when you're a person who believes that love should be persuasive, then uh, you don't think you're going to, it's really poor strategy to try to beat your, uh, your uh, interlocutors into submission by accepting your view. So <laughs> um, I think what I want, probably most of all, is to, is to say what matters to me most. Um, I'm an open and relational thinker, as I mentioned earlier, because I think it gives the best framework for understanding love. Uh, at the end of my life, if people are gonna put something on my tombstone, uh, it's not that important to me to put on my tombstone that I was a theologian. It's more important for me that they say, he really tried to live a life of love. That's what I wake up in the morning thinking about. That's what I take as my life's goal. And as I see it, my theological task is making sense of that. I think um, that has arisen from my theological work, but then also making sense of that deep calling, that intuition and open relational thought helps me do that well. Tom Ward, thank you for coming back on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thanks for the opportunity. I always love our conversations. Very good. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is Open and Relational Theology from Sacrosage. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord. <laughs>